everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Shiloh and I'm here with episode 81 with my co-host and co-creator, Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back. Episode 81. We Uh keep piling them up. It's crazy. We sure do. We sure do. Trucking along. So we've got an episode this week that I think is fascinating. But before we get to that, we're going to do some housekeeping. We've got a whole new plethora of Patreon members that we are so honored to have be part of our group. So we want to welcome Suki, Krista D, Tracy L, Aubrey A, Melissa V, Sarah B, and Ellen M. Thank you so much for being part of the family. It's very exciting. Yes. Thank you, guys. Normally, we announce the names on Get Vocal, but for one, we didn't do it for a month. And then when we came back, we completely forgot. So I thought, let's just do it on the regular episode. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I think we probably this would be great to keep doing it this way because we just run out of time on our Get Vocals. Like I, We could probably do a two-hour Get Vocal with as much material as we bring to that platform. So yes. this way we can zip through it. This is good. I like it. I like it. So speaking about zipping through it and jumping into it, you ready to get dirty today, Dr. Scott? Mm. <laughs> Are you scared? Are you okay? <laughs> uh, well, you know, as, as most people will understand as we go through this episode, it's we're going to be walking through a minefield in a bit. So, but That's it's okay. Great, it needs to be talked about, right? Fascinating way to put it. This has been on my radar for a little bit and we have really gone back and forth with the right way to do it. I put this out as a challenge to everybody, you and I included our listeners. It's going to be an interesting topic to try and stay in sort of this dialectical way of thinking. (laughs) This is not an all or nothing. This is for you to really put on your critical thinking caps and listen to the information that we have gathered for you and then make your own determination. And it's not as if we haven't covered topics that sort of tread in the same way. I'm thinking of Stockholm Syndrome and Munchausen by proxy, where there are... Those were more psychological phenomenon. This is certainly more medical that don't really... We had to explore whether or not it warranted a name to it. Or is it just a, like you would say, constellation of behaviors perhaps that we're slapping a label on? Yeah, I'm. thank you for creating a frame like that. I worry in talking about our subject today. I, I guess I kind of worry that anything that we say lends credence to it because that's actually not why we're here. What we're here to do, like you said, is to sit in some some real distress tolerance and talk about something, a term, a, a, a double-worded term that has been co-opted by a big corporation mm. and a lot of organizations to... Uh, assert that a certain set of behaviors means a certain diagnosis, which you and I don't agree with. And actually, the vast majority of researchers do not agree with that as well. Right. So our topic is excited delirium. What did you know about this topic before we decided to do this? You know what? Very little, except for, of course, George Floyd. And Mm -hmm. then there was mention of it. I never knew a lot about it except to know that even in the description and how it's been used in the last few years to know that that wasn't a real diagnosis. For one thing, 
You know, I've spent a lot of time learning the DSM because of my clinical work and working in uh, clinic settings and hospital settings and incarceration settings. That's not a diagnosis. And that always kind of gets me, you know, even when we talk about Munchausen by proxy, Munchausen by proxy is not, it's only been recently even talked about in the DSM, but the underpinnings, the foundation for it was always there. This is not that. And there's not a true medical diagnosis for this either. So that's what got me interested was like, wait, that's not delirious. I know I was taught as a psychologist to understand what medical delirium is, and uh-huh. this is not that. And so when you worked in the prison setting, did you ever receive any training on this topic or anything Never. like that? Okay. Okay. Never. Yeah, nor did I. And, and I'll go into that a little bit more. I know that I did some informal polling of friends and family that work in medical fields or law enforcement fields to say like, hey... Any training on this? Do you know what this is? Ring a bell sort of thing. And I want to thank a bunch of our followers on social media who I asked who is medical professionals or nurses out there that I can ask. And really, no one had anything to say as far as being trained in this. People were just like flat out, no, I've never been trained. Or I think I remember a mention of it, you know, very vague. And then I also want to thank our Patreon member, Adrian, who pulled a bunch of articles for me that kind of looked at this from a psychiatric nurse perspective and training and what he was able to find, even though it wasn't something that was hugely on his radar either. So let me do this. I'm going to define it. Well, less of a a definition than more of kind of an explanation of a scenario of what excited delirium may look like or what those who support it say it looks like. What it's supposed to be, quote unquote. Yes. Yes. So it's also known as agitated delirium. You might see that in some of the literature. And our episode will go into definitions of those who have chosen to define it. But essentially, it is laid out as a person dying suddenly after being restrained. This can be after a police response and being taken into custody after a violent encounter. But it could also be in a custody setting or in a residential treatment program where people are restrained due to violent encounters in those situations while also under the influence of psych medication. I also saw it termed as restraint-related sudden deaths, and that was mostly in the medical literature looking at psychiatric or medical facilities where this was happening to patients. So again, we're going to kind of explore this like some of the other phenomenon out there. What do we call it? How did that come about? And what is it really? And I don't know that I will have an exact answer for you guys by the end of this episode, but my aim is that you will be armed with more information to really think about this if you hear it in the news at any other time that you think critically about it and know what's out there in the research. I want to start with talking... There are just a few trigger warnings here. We will be briefly mentioning police violence as well as when I get to a criminal tie-in, overdose, and sexual assault. But we are going to start with the connection to the George Floyd incident. Excited delirium has been around for 25 years or so, and we will get into the etiology later when we do our criminal case study. But we really heard this most recently on May 25th, 2020, when 
now convicted murderer and former police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, who was an unarmed Black man and was killed by Derek Chauvin kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes. During that time, another officer that was on scene, Thomas Lane, suggests to Derek Chauvin that they roll Mr. Floyd over or roll him on his side. And Derek Chauvin replies, nope, stay and put right where we got him. And at that point, Officer Lane says, quote, I'm worried about excited delirium or whatever, end quote. So in this case, Floyd's death was ruled a homicide. We know that. The autopsy report also cites coronary artery disease, hypertension, fentanyl intoxication, and recent methamphetamine use as some contributing factors. And what we here in the trial, so that's on the body cam and on the the video that's taken of the incident. But during Derek Chauvin's murder trial, we hear about excited delirium when Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, calls Nicole McKenzie to the stand. Now, Nicole McKenzie is a Minneapolis police officer and she trains other officers in medical care. She testifies that she talks about excited delirium when teaching to recruits in the academy, brand new officers. And essentially, she says she teaches them how to recognize the signs. And she describes those signs as the following, a person being incoherent, exhibiting extraordinary strength, sweating or suffering from abnormal body temperature, or seeming like they suddenly snapped which I don't even know how you go about defining that. (laughs) I guess it's a, I know it when you see it sort of thing. I don't know. And you and I have talked a lot about people not snapping. So... Well, even what you've mentioned so far is problematic. You know, when when you're talking and teaching officers when they're engaging with a subject, you know, it's all going to be based on observation. What do you have? How do you size up the situation? Even when I teach in a jail academy, I don't teach in the police academy, but to the jailers, when I teach about mental health concerns and disorders, it all comes from a perspective of you need to keep this person safe in your jail because you are now responsible for them. But what are the behaviors? I'm not teaching you to be a psychologist right now. What are you seeing that can maybe give you an indication of what's going on? You can't read their mind and you're not a doctor. You can't know what's going on inside their body. So it sounds a little bit like what she's talking about here, but there's a lot that's problematic with that. Additionally, she goes on to teach that things like cardiovascular disease, drug abuse, or mental illness can trigger excited delirium. And that was basically the extent of how it was brought to light in the George Floyd incident and the subsequent trial. Now, it was stated in court, the judge did make sure to say, look, there's no evidence that Derek Chauvin had ever received this training because it was in the academy. And for him, he would have graduated 20 years ago. They don't know what they were teaching probably at that time. But I think it's interesting because it's the younger officer that was on scene. All those officers were pretty new. So they would have recently heard it in the academy and we see that they do talk about it in the academy, at least a little blurb. So I I think this is what has made Excited Delirium come to the surface again and really dig up some questions and the controversy around it. However, let's set the scene there. Let's put a pin in that. Dr. Scott, I want you to give us some background on the clinical disorder delirium just to orient us to what we're diving into today. Yeah, so what that will do is that will give us Certainly some delineation between the standing term agitated delirium versus the true medical definition of delirium. And the reason I'm going to go a little bit into depth into that, and I think it's so important, is that you'll start to see that delirium 
in a medical context has a very clear set of presentation, of behaviors, possible behaviors, possible symptoms, and then possible triggers and causes. So it is a catch-all term within the medical community and medical diagnosis, but it still stays within that particular domain rather than what that supposed expert witness was talking about, which is just kind of grabbing things from all over the place. So delirium itself is a physical and mental state that's brought on by rapid. And when I say rapid, I mean hours to days, not minutes to moments, but hours to days. And it's a significant change in cognition and a real disturbance of consciousness in and out of understanding the world that's around you. The state is most usually stemming from an underlying or existing medical condition or medication or drug withdrawal. However, there's no indication that heart disease causes this unless it's heart disease and you're having a reaction to the medication you're taking for heart disease. So that's important to remember. Delirium affects about 10 to 30% of hospitalized patients with medical illness. So understandably, this is really a significant medical phenomenon. Also, more than 50% of people in certain high-risk populations are affected. And because the state of delirium as resulting from existing medical conditions is so dire, the associated severity and risk of death make diagnosis of this condition really, really important. So what we're saying is that these are diagnoses of delirium in a contained hospital setting or in a hospice setting or in a home medical setting. We're not talking about something happening on the street at all. Patients with delirium can present with agitation, drowsiness, conscious withdrawal, such as an inability to communicate as well as a presentation of what appears to be psychosis. Now, the way delirium presents is so confusing that it's often very difficult to correctly diagnose, which unfortunately leads to very incorrect and false diagnosis of what we understand to be the primary psychiatric condition that may be presenting as delirium. So the correct way to diagnose delirium is to have the history of the patient, including the onset, the course of the condition from collateral sources. And we say collateral, we mean caregivers, hospice workers, family members, relatives, etc. In the contained world of medical treatment, the management of delirium involves several steps. First, you have to identify and correct the underlying problem. Is it fever, infection, incorrect medication, incorrect combination of medications? Is it medication withdrawal? Is it organicity, something that's going on in the body at the time? Or, and this is possible too, is it drug withdrawal and not prescription drug? Is it street drug withdrawal? That is a possibility as well. So now that you're addressing that in the contained world of medical treatment, you also have to symptomatically manage any behavioral or psychiatric symptoms that are presented. So what they're saying is is that if you're not really sure of what's underneath, you have to look at what's underneath while you're managing the symptoms so that you can keep the person safe and possibly even keep the person alive when it comes to fever. Delirium is very common in people with high fevers. We don't see it as much anymore because we have over-the-counter medication which can address fevers at home. But what people forget is that back in the day, before we had over-the-counter medications that you could walk two blocks down to Rite Aid and get, people had delirium all the time during periods of sickness, periods of like pandemics, which have happened before. Flu, you know, going through towns at once, people would have delirium because there was no way to manage fevers. We didn't have the medication for it. So when you're careless with the assessment 
delirium is really easily confused with a number of primary psychiatric conditions because many of the signs and symptoms of delirium are also present in diagnoses such as dementia, depression, and even psychosis. So look, the basic diagnostic criteria is just here's some bullet points. It's a disturbance of consciousness. It means a reduced clarity of awareness about the surrounding environment, and you have less of an ability to focus, manage, or change your attention from subject to subject. You have a change in cognition, which is memory deficits, language disturbances, feeling disoriented, or even developing a perceptual disturbance that's not better accounted for by something else that's going on, possibly even evolving dementia. Next, we have a disturbance. It develops over a short period of time. But again, short is relative. In the field of emergency medicine, Short is within seconds to minutes, right? Sure, sure. But this in a medical setting is usually hours to days and then tends to fluctuate throughout the course of a day. So periods where the person is completely asymptomatic and doing better, and then they can completely lose their ability to stay present in the moment and manage their own behaviors. So additional issues that come from this is that it's impairment in focus attention, memory impairment and disorientation, agitation, apathy, withdrawal, I mean, like social withdrawal, like an inability to engage with the people that are around them. Sleep disturbances, emotional lability, which means swinging between moods from very isolated, withdrawn to almost manic, angry, irritable outbursts, and then sometimes even auditory, visual, and tactile hallucinations. And if that wasn't enough, it can also manifest in neurological symptoms like tremors, balance issues, having an unsteady gait, difficulty reading and writing. But look, like I said, excited delirium is not a diagnosis in the DSM, nor an official diagnosis anywhere except for two entities in the U.S. Right, right. two entities that recognize it. So it really seems like the key to all of that, like you said before at the beginning, is knowing the history of the patient because then you have something to compare against, right? If they're presenting in this out-of-it state, that you suspect is delirium. If a hospital setting has a number of days with the patient so they can compare when they first came in yes. to how they are now to then after, at least that gives them some context to know what's going on. But I imagine this would be very difficult to determine an emergency type situation where you're, as any type of first responder, just walking up on this, you don't have any history. <laughs> You have nothing and here you're trying to make a determination. Right, because the medical goal is to always get to physical examination, lab findings that will give you information that the disturbance is caused by direct physiological consequences of some sort of medical condition, Mm -hmm. right? It's always orienting it back to that medical basis. So that's very different from what's being used in this current terminology. Yeah, so... Let me talk a little bit about medical emergencies in the community, just because that's what our first responders are really up against. And a lot of 911 calls and emergency calls are medical in nature. And some that are others that are just unknown or suspicious or criminal might be medical or might be psychiatric. So, and this is a big topic today, right? We're talking about 
having co-responder models and how much do we start to tap into other social agencies to help out the law enforcement because they can't be expected to do all these things. So I think this is a really important timely topic. But with the explanation that I kind of hit on when I opened up this episode about excited delirium and what that might look like, you have a number of different types of people and professionals that could be involved and coming in contact with, again, I'm going to put this caveat, I might not do this every single time, but again, like what people are saying is excited delirium. You have the fire department. Fire department responds to medical emergencies in the community. You call 911, you're having difficulty breathing. It's the fire department that's going to show up. It's not a medical doctor rolling out, but they have EMTs, they have firefighter paramedics, they are cross-trained many of them as quasi-medical staff to be able to assess quickly out in the field and then put your butt into an ambulance and get you over to the hospital. You also have patrol officers. Unlike the fire department, police officers are patrolling the streets all the time. So they're already out in the field, probably the closest to the medical emergency. While the firefighters at home sitting in their lazy boys watching the football game, they got to get their gear on and get, I know my brother's, my brother's a firefighter. He's going to kill me for making fun of them like that, but they got to get their stuff together, get their gear on and then roll out. So police are often dispatched to medical emergencies because they're already out there and closer and they could possibly do some preliminary assistance, whether it's chest compressions and CPR. Whenever we would roll to a call of like a baby not breathing, we didn't even wait for the fire department. You just scoop that baby up in a patrol car and you go to the emergency room. There is no time there. So police are often there to be the first eyes on to assess the situation and then fire and EMT get there to make the medical decisions. They also might be called if, you know, it falls more in line with the police having to check it out. So is the person acting erratically? Has there been a crime involved? Does the person appear to need some sort of help or assistance? They're just going to be there to roll on basically anything. Or if it's not so much in the community, if it's in a facility like a jail or a prison, we're talking about custody officers or jailers, nurses that are on site, security staff, perhaps. Or if we're looking at more of a psychiatric facility, you're going to have the same. You're going to have your orderlies, your security officers, your medical personnel, and psychiatric personnel. So we're talking about a lot of overlap of different industries and professions that are going to come together when we talk about excited delirium. And therefore, that's how I wanted to sort of navigate this is let's look at the medical research. Let's look at the legal research. Let's look at the psychological research and just give folks an idea of what's out there. But we do have a lot of people that can be impacted like this. Now, you and I did our our sort of casual polls of friends and family to say, hey, are you trained on this? And the short answer is yes and no. And it is all over the place. And that's a problem, right? Um, It is is a problem. It is a problem. It's a problem in a lot of ways. I, I think so much of our conversation today can be philosophical. But when there's a medical concern... We want the medical community to lead the way, right? And then if it crosses over into legal or crime or forensic, then we can look to them and say, okay, this is your area. When it crosses over, where do we need to be educated and trained? And same thing psychologically. If it's crossing over with the psychological world, which we know all of this has a nexus, then we can look to them and say, what's going on? You're the experts. 
How can we align what we know to help with our role in all of this? So police, let's start with police. I had never heard this term. I was never trained on it, not in the academy, not at my own department. Most people that I asked at smaller agencies maybe felt like it was something they had heard along the way somewhere or from someone else, but nothing where they could rattle off what it is and what their policies are and what they're supposed to do, which is what everybody in their discipline should be able to do, right? Because especially if this is something you're going to have to defend in court one day or was part of your thinking in why you did a certain action that you did, you're, you should know these things inside and out. Now, larger first responder agencies like major fire departments, they do train on it. I could find some that do train on it. And therefore, because they're both responding out in the field together with law enforcement, usually those larger police departments will kind of piggyback off the the training that the fire departments do and at least mention it, maybe like Minneapolis did in their academy, or maybe they'll put out some sort of training literature on it, but they sort of follow suit, especially I just noticed this with the, the big cities and counties. Locally, in um, January of 2021, just this year, there is a pilot program going on that started in Long Beach, city of Long Beach here in California. And they are teaching people or they're teaching first responders how to recognize a person experiencing agitated delirium. And the idea is that there is a trained paramedic on scene that if they assess and decide that the person that is interacting with the police is so agitated and dangerous to themselves or others that the paramedics can then administer a sedative, usually ketamine or midazolam is what they're using in in Long Beach. They administer that to the person in hopes of reducing the likelihood of the police having to resort to any force or any more force in order to subdue them so that the paramedics can then get the vitals and make the assessment that they need to do. So in the Long Beach pilot, they're rolling out training to the officers to be able to know how and when to possibly communicate well with the paramedics to be able to use this tactic hand in hand. Does that make sense? So they're kind of working as a team talking about excited delirium. <laughs> I know. Yeah, stick I with mean, me. <laughs> I know, but I know it's just I'm I, I'm no, I'm I'm with you. I'm just already I'm already seeing problems because and you know we we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but to put a pin in right here for our listeners, midazolam, anything that ends with a lamb or a pam is part of the, the benzo family. So it's a hypnotic right. that's used as a tranquilizer, very rapid when given intramuscularly or intravenously. But the problem is, is that one of the supposed instigators or triggers for agitated delirium right. is fentanyl use. Like, you know, so they're talking about all these substances. So it's like, okay, so you're telling me that this person is acting wackadoo because they've got fentanyl in the system. So now we're going to give them another contraindicated mm -hmm. medication on top of that. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. So clearly, even though we see a lot of problems with this diagnosis, sure. somebody okayed that it was okay to do this. And there's a whole other discussion about use of force, about what works and what doesn't, and how people all across the political spectrum have really screwed up how what options are available to use to... Yeah get people to comply. 
in the community, I mean, across the board. And yeah, we'll, so we'll their stance is, I'm going to read a quote here by Chief Espino of the Long Beach Police Department. Quote, even though the fire department or paramedics have had a protocol in place for many years to use midazolam for different types of incidents, including agitated delirium, the big change is now that we're working in concert with police department and now it's a joint effort to again bring medical interventions to these folks. So that's happening. I fortunately, my brother was able to take a phone call for me today. He was at work. He has been a firefighter and a paramedic for much of his long career. He's someone that's coming up on retirement. So that that gives you an idea of how many years he's been doing this. Incredibly smart man. I trust him so much. He is wonderfully thoughtful and articulate. He's also a, like a brilliant writer. He is <laughs> not what I think of when I think of your, you know, sort of average first responder. He has this whole creative side to him, this whole piece where he can just articulate verbally and in the written word so beautifully that I knew he was a good person to talk to that could be able to give me his experience and training or lack of training in this area and kind of explain that to me. So he said in his career, he's probably seen one case of what he has been taught is excited delirium. So it's quite rare in the sense that he couldn't explain it in any other way. Now, I think that's interesting because... If it's something that we feel like is unexplainable, that lends to this whole idea of, mm, are we just sort of putting some things together and calling it this nebulous term? But every other time he was able to either rule it out or see that there was something else going on. And he was doing a really great job at sort of explaining to me of how paramedics have the right to use chemical restraint because they take a stance of patient advocacy. They really want to make sure that the patient is going to get the medical care that they need and that they are not harming themselves or anyone else in the community, of course. But that that is their lens that they look through. He he really said, you know, I feel like that gets lost a lot of the times. It's like we're doing something to them or, you know, this our right. number one goal is the patient and making sure that we're going to be able to stabilize, keep everyone safe, and then get them to medical doctors who can do what they need to do. But he really sees his role as assessing what's going on is very important, yet he's careful because there are some diagnoses he can't make. There are some times where he needs to document what he observes, but to say, this is a possibility, and then it goes into the hand of the MD that can say, oh, okay, firefighter so-and-so, paramedic so-and-so, this kind of caught their eye. I'm going to make sure I don't skip out on ruling that in or out. So it, it's really like this first step nexus to right. the the medical attention given to this individual. And it kind of feels... He, he said it's incredibly hard to explain. He said, yes, he was trained on it, but it has been a long time ago. So it doesn't sound like it's something where... You know, it's the annual training that they have to do all the time. He was able to dig up a, an old document for me where he found a little mention of it. But... He said it's it's almost, he explained it like this. <laughs> I have to know the vitals of the person and some of the things going on like body temperature and heart rate. And he's like, sometimes you can't get close enough to someone yes. if they're being combative to get those vitals until a chemical restraint is administered. So it's hard to know what's going on on the front end before the person needs 
can be calmed down. He kind of gave me a good example too. He said, I think if it exists, it's in very few cases, but you don't know until afterwards. So he said, it's like alcohol withdrawals. In 2% of alcohol withdrawals, people go through DTs. Not, you know, the majority of people are not experiencing true delirium tremens. So he said, but you really don't know that until afterwards when a diagnosis has been made and the person is sort of out of that state that you can then go, ah, okay, in retrospective, that's what was happening. So, you know, it, it, it lended a little bit of understanding for me to see just how complicated this is if it, one, if it is a thing, and two, what else do we need to be doing in research-wise to really nail this down or to throw it out altogether? So there's a few things that are controversial about this. Should we just hit <laughs> the main ones? <laughs> Yeah, I think that let's talk about the controversy of it in the framework that we've set up already. And then we'll come back with some more questions and examples. I think, you know, like once again, I'm always going back. Do you think this type of medical intervention should be used outside a hospital setting? I do. I mean, I certainly, I mean, your Mm -hmm. brother outlines it perfectly. I think that in the appropriate case, it absolutely is. But once again, oh God, yeah. Even your brother has more medical training than either one of us. And he is the one saying that he needs specific information about what's going on for the individual physiologically before they're going to take a certain chain of actions, right? Right. And obviously, I mean, medical interventions are done in the field or in the community outside of a hospital setting all the time. But where I'm seeing this start to get messy is there have been accounts of police being over-reliant on paramedics to calm people down when the police are not the medical experts, where there's an agitated person and the cops are going, all right, EMT or all right, paramedic, load up your syringe with that ketamine and let's go, <laughs> let's go tackle this problem. When First of all, I, I kind of brought this scenario by my brother, and he's like, first of all, I don't take orders from cops. Like they, they they're not the well, ones. That's the, that's the ongoing, yeah, never-ending saga between fire fire departments right. and law enforcement. Always, right? always. But there are even nurses who feel like they have been sort of bullied or put into this position of, you know, giving someone this magic drug to calm them down. I I heard a, a 60 Minutes podcast where they were talking to a nurse who refused. And he said, I will make the assessment of what this patient needs and determined that the person did not need it. And for some reason, ended up getting in trouble when the cop isn't like, it's not his supervisor, it's not the person that can order him yeah. to do something. So there are these controversial cases where the police are thinking it's a magic drug to subdue someone when, of course, we don't want anyone getting hurt. I don't want the person getting hurt. I don't want the police getting hurt. I don't want the community getting hurt. But are there some other things that can be done and explored like de-escalation and you know some things of that nature rather than let's just jab them with ketamine. But that's sort of one area in which this is coming up as controversial right now. Okay. So I want to get back to a point that you had brought up in our outline. Is there proof that someone can actually be excited to death? Because that's what that's right. what this diagnosis is implying, right? This supposed diagnosis is supposedly implying that someone can be excited to death. So the ACLU and other organizations like the Association for Advancement of Color People have the stance that this diagnosis that we're talking about, agitated delirium or excited delirium, is garbage. 
that it's not real, and it's used by certain entities such as law enforcement to deflect responsibility to the person experiencing the emergency when they die after a use of force incident. And clearly, this is a controversial topic. We all want to evolve and move through this and get better. We want law enforcement to be better. We want EMTs to be better. We want mental health to be better. We want the community to be responsible. But this is a complex discussion that requires a complex answer, which a lot of people want to run away from, like people want to run away from complexity. So look, basically being pawned off as an unfortunate perfect storm of events, including drug use, medical emergency, agitation, mental illness, and then some application of force is used instead of what many believe would be a straight up police abuse of force. So use of force thing, it is such a a spectrum. I want to give an example. I want to talk about one thing really quickly that I witnessed myself when I worked in the jail. So I worked in an area called the Inmate Reception Center. It was 24 hours a day, and it was people being brought all over the county, all the men processed through the inmate reception center. And everybody is processed literally four times. You were asked multiple questionnaires. You're seen by a nurse, a mental health clinician, another nurse, and then a doctor or a series of doctors. I mean, and it is like, it's a machine. Maybe not the most well-oiled machine, but it's a 24-hour facility that never closes and always goes unless the whole facility is on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Now. What I witnessed was a sheriff's deputy that I worked with, one of the most honorable, talented people I have ever met. This young man is a stellar human being. And I I hope that his career to this day, I mean, it's been probably eight years now. I, I just thought highly of this guy. He was, he treated each inmate with respect. He treated each staff member with respect. He was highly trained, worked the worst shift that there was. And I saw him interact with someone who was being a complete asshole. This person was not on drugs. This was, he was being incredibly difficult and not adhering to any, it's like, dude, you you're in jail. Like there are rules now. Like you, you walk where they tell you to walk, you go where they tell you to go. And he was, you know, absolutely not cooperating. My acquaintance, the deputy worked through every single de-escalation technique there was. He was polite. He was professional. He was quiet. He modulated his tone of voice. He offered a couple of options, you know, like sometimes you give a couple of options that actually are going to go back around to your primary option as a way of maneuvering through the situation. And this individual was not having any of it. So I witnessed this. He gently put one hand under the guy's armpit and another hand on his elbow. I'm talking gently, and he gently steered him towards the containment unit that we were going to walk him towards, and the guy collapsed screaming that he was being beaten, collapsed on the floor, refused to get up, requiring medical staff to then be diverted to come over, get him on a gurney. Nothing happened. I was right there. My acquaintance's career was derailed for another two years because of that. He was written up for use of force that did not occur. Now, I know that like many of our listeners out there are going to go, well, that's anecdotal. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It is anecdotal. But I'm telling you, I was there. I witnessed it. I saw it. I was literally four feet from this. And did you guys have cameras in that section of the jail? Cameras everywhere. And it doesn't matter. I know. And, and, And even when you talk to the supervisors, they shrug and they go, it doesn't matter. 
He claimed that it was a use of force against his body. And now we have to go through this right. and take some this excellent worker mm-hmm. out of line mm-hmm. for, you know, it took him two years to recover from that. Yeah, there. right when I was coming on to the place where I'm at now, the agency was getting the body-worn video cameras. And rightfully so, you know, it was something that was throwing them off. Like, I'm going to have a camera strapped to me. I don't, I don't know if any of us would want a camera strapped to us you yeah. know, throughout our workday. <laughs> but very quickly, when it started debunking these false accusations of various things, including use of force... Did the officer start to come around and go, oh, this is actually protecting me. Right. There's some utility here, right? Yeah, yeah which was a, a great, just a good example of, you know, being open to change and not having sort of this doomsday thought approach to it. But I did want to bring up a side issue here because I think a lot of what we're talking about today has to do with us as sort of crime spectators, especially in this day and age. body-worn video camera. We see clips of that on the television all the time. And in many cases, we hear about a situation, police interaction, where the police have had contact with a person, possibly, and I think this gets highlighted a lot, for a very, very minor reason, maybe not even a crime. Maybe someone just calls because they're suspicious or, you know, the resident calls and the police have to show up and answer that call for service. And it ends up resulting in an awful situation where the person dies. Now, this is what some are saying can happen as a result of excited delirium. But oftentimes, as those spectators, we or people, what we do is the death of the person automatically gets compared to why the police were there in the first place. And that's really emotionally triggering, right? Because those things don't make sense. They don't line up. It's like, wait a minute, what it was just this person was walking down the street and was contacted or really a fraudulent $20 bill and it ended in somebody's death. Like it's just mind boggling. But here's where I encourage people to kind of sit in the gray and do the critical thinking is that in actuality, it's way more nuanced than that, right? Because there's a lot that happens in between. We talked about the importance of history, what's happening before. Were there any of the onset issues occurring as outlined in the medical diagnoses that we covered earlier? So use of force when that's applied doesn't actually have anything to do with the crime. Unless, of course, like it's a person with a machete wielding around in a store where there's a bunch of people and they can eminently be killed. Then, of course, that's directly related to crime. But use of force usually comes into play when... The person needs to be detained or arrested and they are not complying with that or they're actively being violent to somebody else. It could be somebody on the street, a a bystander. It could be medical personnel. It could be police officers. But that's when any application of force, even if it's like you were talking about this deputy guiding somebody, gently guiding someone or go up the chain of you know, the different stair steps of increased use of force when you legally have to take somebody into custody or contain them for the safety of themselves or somebody else. So I think a lot of that gets lost when we look at the beginning result and the end result. And there's a lot that can happen in between. I hope this doesn't come out as me justifying (laughs) excited delirium because by the end of this episode, you're going to know that's not the case. I just want to bring to light... No, I don't think, I mean, I hope it doesn't to other people. I feel very clear that we set this up at the beginning that Mm -hmm. we're talking about a very complex conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, law enforcement agencies, at least the ones I've worked for, like you were talking about, make great efforts to exhaust every other option before they get to use of force. Absolutely. And when use of force happens, there is instantly an entire sequence of events that is led by an investigation that minutely investigates every step of a use of force. Absolutely. Absolutely. Minutely. Every bit of it, multiple questions, camera, everything. I think that a lot of people don't realize that that happens. Now, we have to give a caveat, though. You and I work in Southern California, and there's a lot of examination. There is a lot of scrutiny on the individuals that become involved in this. And I know from having relatives that work in smaller agencies around the country that, you know, not every agency puts this much concentration or importance on that kind of investigation. Excellent point. Excellent point. So look, the other side of the coin is that often law law enforcement or medical staff, including medical examiners, will argue that people that died of excited delirium while they're restrained, they are often victims of their own long-term struggles with stimulant use, that it's basically a form of heart disease that occurs from high chronic drug use. Now, how I pull that apart <laughs> is, let me tell you, I did over 17,000 brief psych evaluations and moderate terms evaluations while I worked at this county jail. Mm-hmm. Every night, back to back, over and over again. I have met individuals who have basically done narcotics through a fire hose for the past 30 years. And there is nothing wrong with them physiologically. Now, that is not my way of saying everybody go out and do hardcore drugs. I'm not no, saying that at all. Don't you I'm saying that you cannot make a statement like that and just blame it on the victim. Well, they got agitated because they're a chronic meth user. And well, maybe they don't have any meth in their system right now, but their heart was working overtime to um, yeah. address their excited delirium. And it's like, oh, no, 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 that's not a thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> so pretty generalized. They, yeah, it's way too generalized. They they point out that being high on a stimulant puts the body in a fragile medical state while they're under the influence. Then they can exhibit delirium, which can include a plethora of symptoms, including like heightened heart rate and an increase in body temperature. That increase in body temperature thing, I want to talk to your brother about that because that just seems so... Well, he said that's like something arbitrary. that's, that's, that's one of the vitals he absolutely looks for. But he said also that could be a million different things. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay, that could, you could have an increase in body temperature due to dehydration or something. I mean, there there's lots of things that could cause that. Sure. So essentially, how can first responders expect to know a person's entire medical history? What's going on inside their body? What happens when they arrive on scene to handle the situation? You know, one of my best friends lived in a condo over in West Hollywood and had this neighbor that he had known for years and came home and heard this kind of knock, knock, knock slump against his front door, opened the door, and his neighbor was like on the threshold, mumbling incoherently and slurring his words. And of course, mm-hmm. my friend thought, wow, I didn't know my friend had a drinking problem. This is really <laughs> bad. And then the dog, the the both his dog and the neighbor's dog started acting up in a really crazy way. And he was like, dogs don't act that way. Weird. He goes, there's got to be something else. So he called 911. The guy was diabetic. Yeah. He had never known right. that his neighbor was diabetic and his sugar had gotten completely out of whack. And he went into a completely 
misunderstood state. A lot of people don't remember Dudley Moore, who was the actor uh-huh. that was in Arthur. Arthur and a bunch of other movies. He had a horrific, tragic end to his life. People did not know he had had an inflammation of the basal ganglia and a growth in his brain, which caused onset of severe Parkinson's. It hit him so rapidly that he wasn't able to communicate it to people. And everyone, his friends, even family members thought, oh, he's drunk again. They stopped returning his calls. This guy almost died because nobody would make the effort to find out what was going on for him. And finally, friends, a really close friend ended up taking him in and kind of helping him through his end days. But that's a perfect example of like, you have to have so much history in order to get a real... Right. Accurate medical diagnosis. It's so complex. Well, again, this is the the stumper here, right? Our, our right. first responders are getting called to a situation they know nothing about. Like my brother said, it. he said exactly this. Okay, so there's a guy naked standing in the middle of the street speaking in tongues. <laughs> That's actually how he described the one excited delirium case. But he said, I don't know if this person is having a medical emergency, a psychiatric emergency, or is it drugs? You know, what is going on here? And we were talking about, you know, you're trying to make this assessment really based on just observation until you can get close enough to this person to take vitals and start doing some medical stuff. And it's just tricky. I mean, these it's a really complex situations where no two are exactly alike. We're asking our first responder friends to do the best that they can With empathy, with respect, while also caring for their own safety, the safety of the community, and the safety of the subject. So to me, this is a huge indicator that one thing, like excited delirium, can't possibly tie all this up in one bow all neatly. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Let's talk about... The history of where excited delirium comes from, but it also ties into a very fascinating case. Hopefully, if you aren't suspect of this phenomenon already, this will maybe do it for you. So in the mid-1980s, there was a string of deaths of Black women employed as sex workers in the Miami, Florida area. All 17 from the late 80s had been found dead in the north end of Dade County. So it was one very tight, specific area. And there was really no indication of how they died. There were no signs of trauma. They, of course, looked for injection marks. They started thinking overdose. Most were naked from the waist down. And of course, everyone decided this is this is probably a medical issue. This is probably something due to drug use because they all had cocaine, at least cocaine in their system. Some had other stuff on board. The deputy chief medical examiner at the time was a forensic pathologist named Charles Wetley. And Dr. Wetley was brought in by the police and he made the determination from what, I don't know, not a pathologist, but 
there also didn't seem to be anything research-wise substantiating what he was saying. But he said that it was a combination of, quote, cocaine use and sexual intercourse that had killed these women. I'm sorry. What, Dr. Wetley? <laughs> I, so I, I, I'm not I, even kidding. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just hang on. It gets worse. So he then said that after chronic cocaine use, the male of the species becomes psychotic and the female of the species dies in relation to sex. On behalf of the psychological and medical community, I would wish <laughs> to offer an apology to any and all that were, have been affected <laughs> by this type of bullshit. By this bullshit artist. So he goes on to start using a term, excited delirium, to label what he hypothesized as this terminal event in which the cocaine use impacted nerve receptors in the brain of these women. And it was the combination of being on a stimulant and then having sexual intercourse through their jobs as sex workers that ended up resulting in death. So the fact that these women were found in fields and um, abandoned structures, naked from the waist down with their legs spread apart, even though to those of us that are, you know, true crime aficionados tells us hmm, maybe something else is going on. He was like, oh, no, no, no. Like they died in the in in the course of intercourse. And then the John freaked out and left them there. Oh, my God. So a lot of his work in the 70s and 80s when cocaine and crack were flooding Miami was really on the overdoses of these stimulants. So he was really already primed to look through a lens, a very narrow lens when he came upon these cases and this ridiculous explanation of his. When the police started looking at the cases closer, they exhumed some of the bodies. They were ordering more talk screenings to try and track exactly what sort of strain of drug it was when it was coming into the city. I mean, they really wanted to say, like, is there some new drug flooding the system that we don't know about on the streets? The police were handing out flyers to other sex workers, warning them of unusual reactions to cocaine and to seek medical attention immediately. And then also to provide a sample so that the medical examiner's office could study what was going on. So they they really started digging a little bit more when there was no real seemingly explanation except for this excited delirium. And then in 1988, yes, December of 1988, a young woman's body turns up and it fits the exact same pattern, except she was clean of all drugs and there was zero evidence that she engaged in sex work. So that got them thinking that this could be something else. So when they went back and exhumed the bodies and did more thorough investigations and evaluations... You mean actually doing of, the job that they should have done the first time. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> you know what they found the cause of death was? It was asphyxiation by a serial How killer. How could they miss that? Because of racism, because of stigmatizing women who are doing drugs and engaging in sex work. I, I mean, unfortunately, I get that. Like, I mean, I, I unfortunately, we even did our, you know, our previous episode on the House of Horrors. We get that 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 happens. What yep. blows me away about that particular case is that strangulation and asphyxiation leave such definitive post-mortem symptoms and they somehow yes. didn't pick those up. I, I know. I know. Finally, in 1992, 
after DNA was able to come through, you know, like actual science, the police charged Charles Henry Williams with a number of these women's deaths. Ultimately, he was linked to the deaths of 32 women in the Miami-Dade area until his death in prison in 2005. He died from AIDS at the age of 38 while in prison, while still waiting to stand trial for one of these murders. Essentially, this origin story of excited delirium really is starting to smell like medical racism in a lot of ways. And I don't know if it has just now begun to evolve into a different way of blaming those who die in specific situations. And in this case, you know, what we're talking about now with being in a restrained sort of situation, taking the blame off of those that are influencing what is happening to these individuals when they come in contact to, with police or medical staff or psych staff. Of course, we only really hear about it in police situations. But once I learned about this piece, I was like, oh, okay, this was used right. a long time ago to blame the victims for the ways in which they were dying. And it just once that genie was out of the bottle, even though it was completely like the most weak-ass, right. non-connected thing and, and disproven before it becomes part of the common vernacular, it had already escaped into the community. So there it is. And just to, I mean, not right. that this wonderful podcast needs any more promotion because they're doing great, but Behind the Bastards has a wonderful episode on this that everybody should listen to. Two it, episodes. Oh, it's two. Yeah, it's two parts. And if you want more about history and deeper dives and a thousand times more snarky than we're... I know. We think we're snarky and those guys, like, they leave us in the dust. Yeah. I'm so impressed. I hope I get to meet him sometime. Both of them, actually. But right. look, you know, yeah. going back to what you were talking about, so the genie's out of the bottle. And let's talk about what the current research is. Not even necessarily the research, but the nomenclature for how it exists. So here's a list of the organizations that don't recognize it. The American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the World Health Organization, the European Society of Health Medicine, and it's not in the DSM-5. Oh, just, just those just little those organizations? Little ones, right? Oh, okay. Organizations that do recognize it are the National Association of Medical Examiners, and the American College of Emergency Physicians. I have incredible respect for all those professions or those two domains, but I'm incredibly disappointed that this is an example of what has slipped through because, frankly, if this is slipping through, then where else are they off, right? In 2011, the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine, excited delirium is defined as characterized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in the pre-hospital care setting. It is typically associated with the use of drugs that alter dopamine processing, hyperthermia, and most notably, sometimes with the death of the affected person in the custody of law enforcement. Subjects typically die from cardiopulmonary arrest, although the cause is debated. Unfortunately, an adequate treatment plan has yet to be established in part due to the fact that most patients die before the hospital arrival. While there is much to be discovered about the pathophysiology and treatment, it is hoped that this extensive review will provide both police and medical personnel with the information necessary to recognize and respond appropriately to excited delirium. So in 2009, the American College of Emergency Physicians Excited Delirium Task Force stated in their white paper, the exact incidence of this is impossible to determine and there is no current standardized case definition to identify excited delirium oh that's so 
That's a okay. Okay. So that that says there's nothing there. Hey, but, but they, they go, go on. on. <laughs> but that being said, here are the 10 common features of excited delirium, the thing that we just told you that there's no current standardized case to define, but here's some. Pain intolerance, near constant activity, unresponsive to police presence, superhuman strength, rapid breathing, lack of fatigue, naked, inappropriately clothed. I'm sorry. I'm just... I know. Uh, okay. Profuse sweating, it. tactile hyperthermia, and glass attraction destruction. Okay. So those those are the components, the, the common features that this task force on excited delirium put together. Those remind me so much of what I heard about PCP right. in the 80s. Right. And the the difficulty of law enforcement to be able to respond to somebody under the influence of PCP at that time. I mean, my parents were cops right. in the 80s. I heard all kinds of stories. Right. And it was bad. It was actually bad. I mean, yeah. like they were the cases were more rare than people thought, but they were also more dangerous because PCP is a, a very is is a really bad drug all the way around. It's an anesthetic. It yeah. was used way before recreationally. It was found not to be useful in a medical setting because of the associated dangers that mm. are inherent to the drug. It just wasn't a good drug. It wasn't a great anesthetic because it wasn't doing what it was Got supposed it. to do. And besides the fact that it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, there were tons of side effects, including violent outbursts and other things. So the use of it can cause auditory, visual, and tactile hallucinations, distortion in organic sound perception. So it means even the existing sound in the environment can be either magnified, muffled, or distorted, which is mm-hmm. like basically having, you know, a psychotic trip along with auditory and visual yeah. hallucinations. And of course, enough agitation to show a significant spike in violent behavior and reactions. So because of its use as an anesthetic, typical less lethal methods of interaction don't typically work. Like they were saying, mm-hmm. a tolerance to pain can actually happen because individuals on PCP may not feel the results of being tased pepper sprayed, being bagged, or other right. types of other than lethal forces or less lethal as we talk about. Mm-hmm. Reactions mm-hmm. in individuals can vary. Some people will experience detachment, derealization. Other people can become animated, agitated, and grandiose, expansive with feelings of physical strength and invulnerability. However, many research papers have found that the reports of physical violence in interactions with individuals who have been found to have PCP in their system have been reported without substantial background information. I remember probably being way too young and one, it was either one of my parents or my stepdad's ex-wife was also a police officer in, in the LA area. And it might've been her that told me about this story where this man was under the influence of PCP and he jumped into the lion's den at the LA County Zoo. I was able to find an article from 1980 that in fact covered this man's death. And a zookeeper said that like midday, he walked up to them and asked where the lion's den was. And they said he looked totally spaced out and they kind of pointed in the general direction. And he said, I'm going to go play with the lions now. and. They ended up finding his body a few hours later, very badly mauled. He was dead. He was face down. And this 250-pound Asian lion was sitting on top of his body. Yikes. 
Yeah, but there was nothing in the article that substantiated PCP use, but it sounds like it was it's kind of information that had been gathered in law enforcement circles. And now that being maybe it's an urban myth right. that was passed okay, down. Okay, and to that's me. fascinating. And we also have other examples across the U.S. where people who are in altered states—I won't call them—you know—I yeah. won't comment on their level of intelligence or insight or lack thereof. But there, that does seem to be a place where people tend to take bizarre actions is in zoo settings. Yes. Mm, that could be a whole episode. I know, I know. <laughs> Look, my experience in evaluating male inmates in an incarceration setting, I, you know, who have had experience with expensive drug use, and particularly in regards to PCP, they fall into just two distinct divisions. And there are those that assert that it was an amazing high just an amazing mm-hmm. high that was like, and these were types of people that really enjoyed the derealization and depersonalization versus the actually the vast majority of people who had really bad experiences. But even the people who had bad experiences who were chronic substance abusers, I won't use the derogatory term for, that we use for polysubstance users, but they were polysubstance users and they were basically chasing any high they could get. And it would have been right. drinking, rubbing alcohol if they had to. So, and those are the people that had generally bad experiences with these various substances that led to more violent outbursts. So now maybe Mm -hmm. there's something there. Maybe that's a factor people should be feeding into their research about this. So the task force describes excited delirium as when patients present to police, emergency medical services, and the emergency medical departments with aggressive behavior, altered sensorium, and a host of other signs that may include hyperthermia, superhuman strength, diaphoresis, and lack of willingness to yield to overwhelming force. So going back to excited delirium, there's also this descriptor that we have kind of danced around earlier, but it's very specific here. It is also the lack of willingness to yield to overwhelming force. So I Mm. I just think that that's an important thing. I don't have an answer for it because if somebody is on a high level of a substance that is an anesthetic and gives them derealization, depersonalization, and they can't feel physical pain. And their hearing is muffled. And, you know, a laundry list. And the reason I describe that is because I have a problem with them saying willingness. That is is an odd interpretation for... You're trying to set this up so that we understand it better, but you're saying willingness when you have you're indicating that the person has to be so far inebriated or under the under the influence that they would be able mm-hmm. to. Like we wouldn't do that in the case of sexual assault if someone was under so much influence from a substance, and then we have the discussion about whether or not they consented, right? Clearly right. the person is not able to give consent in that situation. So Anyway, I just wanted to bring that in because I just think, again, it's another thing that illustrates how complex this is. A certain percentage of these individuals will go on to expire from a sudden cardiac arrest, like we said before. And traditionally, the forensic community would often classify these as excited delirium deaths. So like you're saying, we need to refocus this and put some more work to it. So they even published a review of selected samples of the existing literature on this topic to determine if it is definable as a discrete medical entity, if it has a recognizable history, an epidemiology, a clinical presentation, a pathophysiology, and treatment recommendations. And that list right there implies so much more than can be done in an emergency setting. 
right? Well, that that list of things is what I would expect that if we're looking at any new term in any discipline to say it has to meet these basic foundations and criteria. So if we're going to call excited delirium a thing, it needs to have a history. It needs right. to have clinical presentation that we can recognize, you know, all those things you listed. So okay, what they found... So what they found, and I'm going to quote here, based on available evidence, it is the consensus of an American College of Emergency Physicians Task Force that excited delirium syndrome is a real syndrome with uncertain, likely multiple etiologies. So the problem I have here is then don't call it a syndrome, call it a a behavioral presentation, right? Right. So they they very definitively said, yes, we're saying this but. is a thing. This is the stance we're taking. But, you know, it's kind of uncertain. We don't really know where it comes from. <laughs> Has multiple ways it could come about. Right. But look, you, you, and thank you for this article. It was great. There was a really great editorial piece and perspectives of psychiatric care by Mary Paquette. She's a PhD and an advanced practitioner registered nurse basically a doctor with all the wonderful experience that a nurse would have that a doctor never gets to have. She gave a review of both arguments for and against excited delirium. And she also talks about the theory that there's a genetic fault for some folks in which drug use results in dangerously high levels of hormones in the amygdala, which increases risk for delirium and aggression. Interestingly, Dr. Paquette also highlighted that since the 60s, there's been cases of individuals who have taken large amounts of antipsychotic meds who have suddenly become manic and aggressive and died after being restrained. So I think that that was a great review because she's pointing out that there's a lot of conflicting information. Mm -hmm. And that's important that you have someone of that high of a level of expertise and professional acumen to be able to make that indication. So in summary, the literature shows that excited delirium is most likely accepted in a narrow, narrow medical area of forensic pathology and medical examiner fields. So, I mean, I'm kind of relieved that it's in a very narrow field, but unfortunately it's in one of the most integral fields for interactions between law enforcement and individuals who are having behavioral concerns during an event. Yeah. So if the coroners at the medical examiners are saying this is a thing and it's a way, it's something that we're going to possibly put on an autopsy report, that's pretty important and hence starts to cross over with legal. So I thought it was important to look at some of the legal research. Of course, they're going to piggyback off of a lot of what medical is kind of trailblazing with as they do when it comes to the overlap in this area. Can I just say before I go on, I'm so proud with all of the excited delirium abbreviations I've made in our notes that we have not said erectile dysfunction once. (laughs) I have come so close. But the fact that we like the fact that we have not said any and that have that will then have to be edited out is pretty impressive. I know. (laughs) So when I started the legal research, I found a study that looked through the lens of use of force situations with police, and the crossover with excited delirium. They were going off of those 10 features of excited delirium that you had mentioned that the task force had put together. And they looked at thousands of use of force incidents over a five-year period. They had a lot of data to look at. 
foundationally, though, they're going with the fact that this exists and that these features are there. So they found that when excited delirium was accounted for and present based on a number of those features existing, use of force was more likely to be used, including more than one type of use of force. So if a strong grip didn't work, then maybe a takedown was used or a taser was deployed. It's It sounds like this finding was showing that they moved through their tiers of force quickly because the ones at the bottom tier, the, the least forceful, if you will, were not very effective. They also found that use of force was so ineffective in these cases, they found that there was a 400% increase in the odds that a use of force intervention would be ineffective in cases involving probable excited delirium. And then when the researchers controlled for other risk factors like perceived drug and alcohol use, previous violent behavior, things like a ground struggle happening at the time of the interaction, and whether or not the officers perceived that there were weapons present when they ruled all of that out, they're saying that it was just this phenomenon of excited delirium that there was a 28% decrease in the odds of a suspect being injured and a 57% increase of the police being injured. So you're telling me that you found that there was way more uses of force and different types of use of force, yet the suspect wasn't going to be as injured as the police when they're the ones trained in how to do this, right? So the main researcher in this case is a force science instructor and a researcher for law enforcement in Canada, which to me can be problematic. It's like having big tobacco hire their own researchers in a way to do their research. Or I want to give the benefit of the doubt, there are some researchers that find their niche in certain areas. I know some wonderful, very ethical researchers who look, who basically just specialize in the areas of policing and just kind of become experts to specific industries. But I think we always have to be suspect when we're looking at that, especially when these findings are what they are. But for me, the narrative of this study is really trying to write the fact that one, excited delirium exists. And then when you're a cop faced with a person experiencing excited delirium, you need to be scared and fearful because you're more likely to suffer an injury than they are, which is... I don't know if encouraging them to be scared and fearful rather than tactical and trained. Like, you know, isn't that a strange advocation there? We, this, this is one of my soapboxes is that like, we, we basically terrify cops into thinking that you know, the second they walk out on the street, they're going to be killed by anyone or anything. And they're what we do is we put it under the umbrella of officer safety and the importance of training. But we, it is a police psychologist that is looking at the way that they're coping and dealing with this job. We're, we're essentially just putting them in a state of hypervigilance all the time where it doesn't, it, we need to make them we need to focus on them being very good communicators and empathetic listeners and de-escalators. That reminds me um, of the first time we met. I mean, in all seriousness, when all four of us as interns were crammed in that little room and you mm-hmm. took the desk with your back to the door. And as we got to know each other that first day, you kind of confessed to me. It's like, I'm trying to train myself to be okay with not being yeah. hypervigilant all the time. And it was, that was a fascinating discussion to have. With someone who had your law enforcement background. Yeah. I mean, even when I still like 
go get a cup of coffee or lunch or something with another cop, I always go, do you want the seat that faces the door? <laughs> like I always default because I know that's what they want to do. But I had forgotten about that. I mean, I'm the um, perfect victim. It's like, yeah. they'll I, I tell you, I'm <laughs> like so dumb about that, naive about that. It's like, I, if there's a van in the park that somebody, somebody tells me, hey, I've got baby pygmy goats in pajamas in my van. Do you want to come look at them? I'll be like, baby pygmy goats. Is there candy too? I'll come with you. <laughs> Excellent. Now I know how to get you in my van. Okay. So there's there's other law journals that talk about excited delirium that just in summary, I wanted to read a quote where they really are just sort of relying on the medical community and medical experts to talk about this phenomenon. And where I saw it addressed was when they were looking at the crossover with the reasonable standard for excessive force allegations. So whether they're looking for experts or talking about this as how to defend your client or how to go about even prosecuting law enforcement or other first responders, which has been done as of September, police officers and paramedics have been charged criminally in the case of Elijah McLean in Aurora, Colorado for his death in a situation where he was given ketamine, he was restrained. There, there I haven't seen any talk of excited delirium yet, but there's really no indication that he was under the influence of anything either. So I don't know if we'll see that. So there's a very specific journal that I wanted to take an example of who they quote and how they quote. And this one was, they were speaking to a chief of emergency medicine at Cambridge Health Alliance. And he explained excited delirium syndrome as, quote, physical response to an actual psychological problem resulting in their autonomic systems producing too much adrenaline. He went on to say that it's basically like having too much nitrous in a car. And he said, eventually the engine will blow up. A heart attack, a less frequent or less frequently respiratory failure is something that's possible. And that essentially he goes, you know, they're just overexciting their heart from the drug use. And then the struggle happens on top of that. That is such bullshit. So that is such bullshit because you, you can't. I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm blown away that a medical professional would make a, a statement like that because you would have examples of this happening. Then people just dropping dead all so over the population, like, having is, nothing to do yeah. with a law enforcement interaction, right? There's got to be some other. We have people dying at like, Disneyland. This is true. We have people dying at Disneyland right. after being on the teacups. I'm sorry. Right. There there has to be another factor. It's not just this simple little formula. Well, also the, the his or it doesn't also exist. the fact that it just pisses me off that he's a medical doctor and saying that it's a mm -hmm. psychological problem. Yeah. And what psychological right. problem? Right. I mean, well, and I look, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like start with panic disorder and the physiological etiology of what happens to the body during panic. You know what happens during panic is your adrenals go and go and go, and then you pass out yeah. at worst case scenario, right. or you just slump over because all of your body's been depleted. Anyway, I'm why am I even giving credence yep. to some a dumbass statement like that? Ugh. I will say, like, look, there one of the things we wanted to do for this in, in researching was look at what are the psychological aspects of excited delirium. And <laughs> what a surprise. We couldn't find anything. Yay. What I, <laughs> Good job, psychology. Exactly. There isn't anything. I mean, that, you know, absence <laughs> of data is it. data in itself, right? 
So yeah. what I did yeah. find that was interesting is when you look through the material that describes actual, you know, the medical definition and diagnosis of delirium and you interview people who have had the experience, they talk about it being in and out of consciousness, in and out of feeling, derealization, depersonalization. There's nothing that's about having motivation to be able to act in a certain way against anyone. Like they may have acted out against their nurses, but they wake up and they're just like, it's mm -hmm. it's like a, a fugue state that they were went through because of whatever that medical etiology for their event was. So lots of, of remembering the event in a way that is disturbing and feeling out of control and not being able to put things together, but nothing like this made up diagnosis of excited delirium. Yeah. I, I think there are definitely going to be folks listening to us that think we didn't go far enough that we were holding back in a sense and those that probably think we went too far. I, I really did want to walk a middle line to be able to give you guys the research for you to make some decisions on your own and not have us really paint it too much for you just to arm you with that knowledge, not to to take a safe route. So don't shoot the messenger. We are, are just giving you a well-rounded look at what the data is, what some opinions are, yeah, I mean, look, the, uh, this is this is a you described it perfectly at the beginning. This is a dialectic with a mm -hmm. lot of opposing poles and forces within sitting in this difficult area. And what I would say to people in a clinical setting that are struggling with something like this, I, I think it applies to the macro of our community and our our world dealing with this. Is that the only way through this is forward? That's the only way is going forward. We've got to keep growing and evolving with exacting research and really taking a hard look at understanding best practices are not static. Best practices right. have to constantly evolve. And some agencies are doing it way better than others. I am a part of an agency, I think, that is doing it way better than others that I've seen around the country. And, you know, we've got to, and we've got to hold everybody responsible as well. Everybody has to take mm -hmm. um, a hold of their responsibility in this dialogue and be willing to have uncomfortable conversations and also holding other professionals, quote unquote, for accountable for pushing an agenda that is not legit. And you will find out by listening to Behind the Bastards that there is a whole corporate influence of this yeah. term used as well. And I encourage people to listen to it just, just for right. that. Like you were saying, Shiloh, it's it's a much deeper dive in other areas than we've covered. Right. The the research basically agrees to disagree oh, at this point. And you if you want, I, I mean, I would say half of the resources that I have and that I'm going to put up in our research notes are from some sort of medical entity talking about this as a thing. And there were some that I came across where it doesn't even explain what excited delirium is. It's just a given that they're just talking about it. So it's there. You can find it. But I wonder, is this like some of the other psychological phenomenon that we have dissected right. where is it better just to scrap it at this point and try to size it up for what it is? Are we, you know, is this a medical condition? Is this a mental health emergency? Is this under the influence of drugs or a combination? And why can't we just say it's a combination? Why do we have to name it? 
because people are dying in some instances. And what is that about? So I, I don't think it's a wide reaching multidisciplinary conspiracy to blame the deaths of marginalized communities on the cops. I think it's a much bigger nuanced issue of how we respond to mental health and mental illness emergencies. It's about systemic racism as well, but it's also society's inability to handle an addiction health crisis. It's all of those right. things. We can't just say, oh, here, here's this this thing that it is, and let's just blame it on the person and then be done well, with it. Well, let's just lump these things that are sort of in the same domain and then hook them together as if correlation yeah. is causation when that's not how it works. Right. And and I go back to really the major organizations not supporting this as a diagnosis across the board. And who knows, with more research, more robust research, maybe one day, day there'll be enough evidence to support it. You know, SIDS wasn't a thing yeah. until it was. And look at the name of that sudden infant death syndrome. You know, this could be some sort of sudden adult death mm. syndrome. I don't know. I know. I know. I, I, know. I, 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 no, I appreciate your being. <laughs> I appreciate like, you know, even you and I have our colleague that was, you know, really a young and cutting edge researcher on Morgulons. And when it was completely unrecognized and now we're finding out that there mm -hmm. actually is a disease, right. but only in a very small amount of people. So once again, sure, we've got this big global phenomenon of data that needs to be more carefully organized and researched right. and presented than what it's doing. You know, like you were indicating about people just in journals talking about it as if it's a legitimate thing. And then someone else yeah. quotes that journal in their research as if it's a legitimate thing. And then the real work that needs to be done gets lost in all that morass. Right. And then what, you know, 60 years later, here we are talking about Stockholm syndrome, like we know what it is when it was just basically some sexist idiot that labeled it as something that it right. wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, I just think the optics are bad when we ignore that we should be really refocusing on things like better de-escalation training for our first responders or how we can better respond to some of these emergencies in the communities. Those those feel like the meatier, more beneficial places Absolutely. to start. Absolutely. So. I, thanks, everyone, for this has been a very long episode about an issue that people have asked a us. Dense yeah, topic. it's a dense topic, <laughs> and we've been asked to address this, and we wanted to have the right tone for it. I hope we'll be able to have more discussion and, you know. And we want your feedback. I know absolutely. This, this will reach way more people than just our social media. So if you have been trained, if you have thoughts and experiences on either side of the coin, please feel free to shoot us an email and let us know your thoughts. We would really, really appreciate yeah. more insight. That'd Thank be great. Okie doke. Well, that's it. That's all for today. Um, feeling okay, Dr. Scott? I am. And we all will. Right, me too. We are so looking forward to seeing everybody on Get Vocal. Please always join us for Behind the Couch. Yes, that would be great. So everyone, we will talk to you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. 
The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast, so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.